Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of Yolitics. Jason Whiteley here. We are on what week five now, I believe, of Jason Wheeler's absence. Keeping a close watch on him, holding vigil for him as he's out with back surgery right now. We do expect him back, hopefully, by the end of next month, by the end of April. I'll keep you guys updated on that. But I am not drinking alone today. I don't think I am like I was last week. This episode of Yolitics is going to be a first for us. We're talking with folks from another podcast, a brand new podcast out there that I really wanted to highlight because these guys are talking about something that I think gets overlooked and has been overlooked for far too long. It's The podcast is called The Latino Vote, and it's simply exactly what you think it is. They talk a lot about Texas. They talk a lot about Latinos across the country. And what I like most about this podcast is they really get down into the weeds. And I'll, I'll read the synopsis uh, on the podcast. This is brand new. You can find it right now on Apple, Spotify, Google, places like that. It says, the Latino Vote podcast brings together the most sophisticated Latino voices in the country to provide you with insightful, accurate, unbiased, and timely information relating to the voting patterns and inclinations of the nation's Hispanics. The Latino Vote is the name of the podcast, and two of the stars on the podcast are with us right now. I'm going to start with introductions so you can match the uh, the voices with the names here. Mike Madrid, you, you may know his name from the, the headlines and from the New York Times uh, recently, as he just penned a, an, an op-ed uh, there. He has a long career in Republican politics before leaving the GOP because of Donald Trump. Uh, he's the founder of the Lincoln Project. Mike, How's it going, man? Welcome back to the podcast. Jason, it's great to be with you, man. It's been a years, like we were mentioning before we went live here. Uh, last time we talked, we were in the stretch of the 2020 cycle. So uh, always a great to be back with you. And I'm excited about doing this with Chuck and looking forward to having a conversation with you about it. Yeah, every time you guys come on, you and, and Rick Wilson, your, your colleague from the Lincoln Project, man, you guys are, uh, you know, hold the record for the most downloads. So we'll see if, if Chuck can uh, up on that. So <laughs> pressure's Don't on put Chuck. that shit on me. <laughs> Chuck Rocha there, the senior strategist uh, for the Bernie Sanders campaign for both of his presidential campaigns. He is from East Texas, from Tyler, Texas, a well-known political consultant for years. He runs Solidarity Strategies. And uh, man, hey, our our listeners can't see this, but but man, you look the most Texas of any guest I think we've had in a long time, Chuck. Well, as I said, when I came on with no disrespect, I wear this hat every damn day. And I've had this T-shirt on for three days. Mike Madrid can attest to. So I didn't dress up for you, Jason. (laughs) <laughs> well, the black cowboy hat is nice, man. I like the T-shirt as well. Um, you know, I, I started the podcast, you know, w- with some well-deserved praise because what you guys do in the podcast is something I think a lot of us really try to get into. And y'all really get down into the weeds um, in, in the three episodes that, that I've listened to. I want to start with November 2020, since that's our most recent, um, you know, line in the sand that we can really measure from. There, there was an extraordinary increase, as you guys know, in Latino voters in two states, especially uh, in Arizona and in Texas. And this is important because both of these states have large Latino populations and then they have uh, historically low voter turnout. But in Texas, the Latino voter turnout was 53 percent in November of 2020. That's up from 40 percent from four years before. Here's my question. Is this a one off because the 2020 election had so many voters show up 
or is this a, a real sign uh, that Latinos are really getting a lot more engaged in the electoral process? Well, I'll jump in here, Mike. Uh, I, I will say that it's a combination of both, in my opinion. None of these questions that me and Mike get literally every day about the bump with Trump in Florida or the Texas Valley or a monolith, it's the same questions. And Jason, this is a good one. Um, it's different. And I think that it's not one thing. It's a combination of things. People that listen to our podcast will learn a lot about culture and Latinos as a whole. The first thing you'll learn is that the average age of a Latino in America is about 27. So we're just younger and becoming of age quicker than white people or black people. So let's add that first step to the ladder of your answer is that we're younger. We're turning 18 quicker. We're registering to vote quicker, not because we love Democrats or we love Republicans. We're just younger and coming of age. Second thing is you had Donald Trump on the top of the ticket in 2020. You had a lot of Latinos who loved Donald Trump. You had a lot of Latinos who hated Donald Trump, just like white people or black people, but a lot more black people hated Donald Trump. So what you saw was a spike on both sides, helping both sides turn out. There was a lot of Latinos who would never vote. People don't like to admit it on my side of the aisle that showed up to vote for Donald Trump. But there was a lot of Latinos who showed up to vote against Donald Trump. One thing me and Mike are going to get into in episodes four, five, and six coming up on the podcast is what does the midterm elections mean now that there's not a Donald Trump or a Joe Biden or a Barack Obama or a George Bush on the uh, top of the ticket? What's going to drive them out? Then it means it has a lot more to do with professionals and the actual campaigns they run because you're not going to have these driving forces at the top of the ticket that's going to make this turnout be what you just described. And Mike, do the same thing. Back up in time here for me for a moment and look at the last little milestone we had, November of 2020. The, the turnout was huge there. Is that a one-off or is that really a sign of things to come? That is a great question too. And these these actual nut and bolt questions is, is what we dig deep into as practitioners. And I think that's what's unique about the podcast here is we've actually run campaigns at the highest levels and at the lowest levels, I mean, we started out doing school board races and city council races, and now we're both doing presidential races, uh, either on the opposite side or together. And so your question about turnout is, is a very important one. And what I am going to say is, is a couple of things about this, because it is nuanced, but it's important to understand. Latinos in presidential election cycles will be setting records for turnout from now through the end of our lives. Why? Because the population is growing so fast, it's just a mathematical inevitability. The question is, what does that mean for the midterms? Because our community has generally had very high turnouts in general elections for the reasons that Chuck just mentioned, but we have dropped it off considerably in midterms with one exception. And that was the 2018 election cycle, the one right before 2020, at the height of all the kind of the Trump mania and the fear that the country was under and arguably some of the motivation that was there. But Latinos broke very, very against Trump and the Republicans in the 2018 election cycle and, and swept the Democrats into power. It's important to understand because your question, as Chuck just mentioned, is, is a very adept one. It's, very, it's a very important question. And what, what we're arguing is that there needs to be greater investments in the community earlier on if you're going to see that turnout manufactured. It's like manufacturing runs in baseball, right? You, you, you get on with a single, you steal second, you bunt them over to third, and then you, you, know, you, you try to drive them home with, uh, with, with the right conditions uh, to start putting points on the board. And that's, that's really what I think 
Chuck's especially Chuck's expertise, especially. And to be honest with you, I, I never really believed you could move Latino turnout numbers and low turnout elections um, because I hadn't really seen it in 25 or 30 years. And then Bernie Sanders started doing it. And so I, I was like, what, what the heck's going on here? And, and in learning more, that's actually where I, I finally picked up the phone and reached out to Chuck and said, what the hell are you doing here? No one's ever done this before. And he's like, you're right, brother. No one's done it before because no one's made the investment before. I convinced these guys to do it. And we actually showed that it could be done. So, you know, a lot of times why, before I met Chuck and before I started working with Chuck, what I would say a lot is Latinos are going to have very low turnouts in the midterms. Um, they're going to have very high turnouts in presidential, high turnout elections. The truth of the matter is, if you do it right, he's already proven that you can do it. Um, the Democrats, I think, infra- from an infrastructure perspective, are much better positioned to actually do it. Republicans don't have that infrastructure yet, but I'm sure they're convinced now at this point that they've, they've got an opening and will probably seize on it. Chuck, what's the investment you made that, that stunned Mike? I think it's a combination of a couple things. Uh, it's, it's based around three legs of a stool. One is starting early. One is expanding the targets. And three is a multi-layered approach. Uh, the multi-layered approach means that most of the time in old campaigns that me and Mike always run, the Latino vote was an afterthought where you went in and did quote unquote GOTV the last couple of weeks. And that was your, maybe you put up a Univision ad during early vote and you checked that brown box. But a multi, we've spent as Democrats hundreds of billion, millions of dollars of trying to reach white suburban women. Let's take, for example, as a persuadable audience. Well, you know how we've done this as Democrats? Smartly, we ran a lot of TV targeted to them, a lot of digital ads, sent them lots of mail, called them on the phone, knocked on their door. Because guess what? If you spend a whole bunch of money talking to a whole bunch of people over a long period of time, you can move numbers. That's just a fact of politics. The problem has been with Latinos is, A, you had a bunch of white folks who didn't understand the community, so it was an afterthought. You had ads that weren't culturally competent. We can get into that later, but, you know, that were Google translated. But if you will do a multi-layered approach, because Latinos, older and younger, just like older and younger white people, are consuming things differently. So use a multi-layered approach. Expand your targets, meaning don't just go talk to all the old Mexicans like me who show up in every election. Start talking to those younger voters who 90% of the time fall outside of your quote unquote targeted universe because they're an infrequent voter and not worth the return on investment for that dollar, right? And then you put people in charge who look like the community that are from the community and you base that investment in the community. We throw those terms around in community too much. What that means is, is you have an office in that community where you have long-term operations going on, building the trust. Because Mexicans like me are used to politicians rolling up into our community every two years, promises us the world, and then disappearing again for another year and a half. If you have long-term infrastructure, like smartly the Republicans did with the Libre Initiative, and like other folks are starting to do, people are getting this, and you're seeing them eat around the margins, hence why you start seeing this siphoning off of our vote to the other side, because there's a competition for it now. But I, I don't get that from the outside because I'm thinking if 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 I'm running a campaign, regardless of you know which office I'm, I'm going for, there's a whole untapped market over there. Why wouldn't I at least bring on somebody like either of yourselves to at least try to get into that market, uh, you know, with with ads or with events or anything else? I mean, that's that's a million dollar question. Chuck and I have been asking for for decades now. The truth of the matter is, I mean, politics is a relationship business. 
And people would rather have an incompetent friend doing it than somebody they don't know or try something different or unique, even though they're getting the same results, which are not as good as they would like. Um, and, and that's just unfortunately the way the business works. We've hit a point now where both parties cannot afford to do that anymore, which is why we kind of launched this podcast to have this discussion across the aisle. Um, and again, look, Chuck and I disagree probably on, on everything from a policy perspective. Um, we, we approach campaigns very differently, but we, we admire each other as practitioners. Like I looked at this guy and said, this guy's done stuff that nobody else has done before. And I, I admired that and I respect that work. And I expect, you know, it's just, we are craftsmen. This is our trade. And you can recognize game when somebody's got it. And, and, and the truth of the matter is for 90% of the campaigns that I have not been involved in and seen Republicans trying to do this outreach stuff, it is an afterthought, as Chuck mentioned. It usually is, oh, my brother spent a year in Spain when he was in college, so he can translate this <laughs> ad and throw something up there that actually has, you know, hurts more than helps. Um, now there's this awareness that that there's movement here and the movement is measurable. It is real. It is going to be a competitive market. Um, my early days, I spent kind of just trying to peel off three or four percent of the Hispanic vote that would turn out. So the Democrats would throw tons of money on the ground to get the turnout Chuck was talking about. My job was to go in and communicate and steal three to four percent so that it would mitigate what they were doing. And that became the crux of most of, I think, both of our levels of expertise of many years of doing that. Me working on kind of the communication stuff because Republicans were never, ever going to invest in the ground. Democrats didn't, didn't do it early, but they would kind of do it. I mean, they would do it a little bit more. They would certainly do it more than Republicans, because especially in California, where I'm from, there are there are cities, Hispanic, Latino cities in California that Republicans have never driven through in, in the past 20 years, let alone where they're going to go down and actually work the community. So my job was to go in and kind of kind of you know message and try and try and peel off whatever the Democrats were additionally turning out. Um, and, and those tactics, again, have both changed. It's kind of an exciting moment in the history of the vote and in American politics, because both campaigns, I think, are, are both sides are, are, are woefully unprepared for what is coming. They really don't know what they don't know. The shift towards Republicans is happening despite their best efforts, not because of their best efforts. And they're going to there's going to be a, a huge swath of voters to go out and get. And we're going to see which party picks up the fastest because it's going to determine the political direction of the country and states like Texas and California and Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, you know, Pennsylvania now, North Carolina, a whole whole slew of states now going forward. You guys really get into this in, in episode two. And, and I was honestly, I was on the treadmill. I was like, holy hell, I need to be writing notes down uh, because you guys were, were diving deep into the weeds on this. And I, I really enjoyed that. But, but Chuck, kind of the same question I had for Mike, what do you think was a light bulb moment for campaigns or were you the light bulb moment thinking, Hey, we can finally, you know, crack that pot over there and, and start pulling out some voters. I think that the there's portions of the people that are in power that are starting to get it on my side of the aisle. Majority of them still don't. Uh, power does not concede power at any level without some kind of struggle. And people forget and they think about politics either as a sport they talk about at the dinner table or they talk about which team their own, team red or team blue. They don't realize that this is a business. They don't realize that this is a multi-billion dollar business. And when you start talking about billions of dollars spent, that means there's consultants making millions of dollars off the billions of dollars. And there's not an area of 
of, of there's not a place for a Latino to break in, not as much because they're brown. It has a lot to do with them being brown. But guess Mike Madrid talked about this in his New York Times op-ed uh, that came out you know, this week, that there's a lot of Latinos, majority of Latinos. Hell, 90% of Latinos didn't go to college. They're working class folks that I grew up with in East Texas, right? And so those people, it's harder for them to ascend to the highest places to be in a room of power when they did not go to Yale or Harvard. Hell, when they didn't go to a state school and the ones that did, let's talk about this. We're going to get into this in the Latino Vote podcast in the next couple of episodes as well. The ones who are the second and third generations who did get to finally go to college and now they have a badass job. Well, guess what? They're taking care of their mamas. They're taking care of their cousins. They're the ones who finally made it. And then fighting and scraping to get into a room for politics is not something that's sexy. So that CHCI intern, that intern that's part of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, who gets a three-month internship up here in D.C., which is pretty much a 90-day job search, that woman or man has a job, he has a degree, he may have a master's degree. As soon as the opportunity presents itself, when he's has been an intern in Capitol Hill or wherever, he or she is not going to go fight with the DCCC. They become a male consultant for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. That first generation or second generation, first in his family to go to college, is going to go to work for Coca-Cola. Because Coca-Cola is offering him $120,000 a year. He's bilingual, he's smart, he's talented, and he's accepted in a corporation that has a diversity and inclusion program that really is about equity and trying to move people up through corporate ranks. Oh my God, Bernie Sanders is going to kill me. I'm talking about corporations and how good they are. But I want to make the, there's not a place like that in politics. There's not a place to break in. So you have this wheel that spins around that's worth tens of millions of dollars of just pure profit. Where does the broke ass Mike Madrid break into that? Where does my sister break in? My cousin, there's not an entry point. That's why that wheel never stops. And there's not one of us inside it. So, so Chuck, does that mean that there's that Latinos are still a sleeping giant when it comes to electoral politics? Mike Madrid gave you the numbers a while ago. No matter what anybody does, we're going to continue to turn 18 three times faster than white people. So the monster is already out walking the streets. It's just who's going to get him to turn or her turn and go into their store. How hard is that going to be, Mike, do you think, for these campaigns that, that, that don't yet recognize the untapped potential uh, among Latinos? Well, they're going to get run over, right? The kind of the tsunami is going to come and it's going to kind of bury them. And especially on the Republican side, there's still this belief that, you know, oh, this is just not that difficult. The demographic is I can see it in my polling numbers. And there's a lot of bad polling, too. On the, you know, and we're going to talk about that on, on, on future episodes. And I'm not talking about partisan stuff. I'm talking about like Wall Street Journal stuff and and, and some of the larger media companies, because nobody uses a, a sample size big enough to accurately gauge the community. Mm. When people start losing races, uh, they start to pay attention. I think it's where the Democrats are waking up and going, whoa, what, what's going on? What is happening here? This was unexpected. This shift towards the Republican Party is kind of catching us um, off, off, you know, off, off guard here. And Republicans are about to do the same because I think, look, and, this, and both parties do this, but it's particularly cute with the Republican Party right now. They think they're doing something right. They think that they're doing something right to attract the Hispanic vote. I will tell you, they are not doing anything different than they have been doing for the past 30 years. What we're simply watching is a demographic explode. These numbers are getting so big. And as Chuck mentioned, when the second and third generation Hispanic starts to uh, acculturate politically, don't use the word assimilate, but that's essentially what's happening. 
is their voting preferences don't look unlike other folks, other white, non-college educated, blue collar workers. It's the working class. And, and, and I think what the Democratic Party is struggling with, and I wrote about this uh, in the New York Times today, is that it's really concentrating white, college-educated, new economy workers. Um, and the Republican Party is consolidating non-college-educated, blue-collar workers, overwhelmingly white. But we shouldn't be surprised when Latinos, which are the fastest-growing segment of the blue-collar workforce, are starting to vote like their white, non-college-educated peers. And so there's this real divide in America that is really an education divide, and it's become a cultural divide because we really live in two separate worlds, and Latinos are, are rapidly backfilling the blue-collar construction worker, um, uh, trade you know, union, um, energy working, you know, um, blue-collar manufacturing workforce. Let me explore that just for a second, Mike, because th- this is a little off, yeah. off, the, off the street for Latino vote podcast, but you know, growing up, we're all about the same age. I mean, the Republican Party had all the uh, you know well-educated suburban voters and city folks, and the uh, Democratic Party always had the uh, you know labor unions and the uh, you know lesser educated, if you will. W- when did that shift happen, and and what do you think caused that shift, Mike? Well, first point of clarification, Chuck is a lot older than we are. He looks kind of young, but he's an old, old man. I look damn good. I'm going to get out good. there. But don't he looks you do look younger, man. He looks good for 80. Um, the, the point really began to change with the advent of the internet and the new economy hmm. is what happened about 15, 20 years ago is new economy workers started to make a lot more money and have a lot more opportunity in the digital age that was, was emanating. And you started to see a decline in kind of older traditional industries as we globalized, as we started outsourcing workers and, and, and companies to other, other countries. And we started shutting down manufacturing. And as certain policies started limiting construction and building and trade and, and, and energy. And, and that shift over the course of the past 20 years has really created a very different dynamic in the country. In fact, it's why the, the, the new the new South, this new Southern strategies. I've argued yeah. states like Texas, Georgia, Arizona, North Carolina are actually being more blue. These are all new economies where people feel very good about the direction of the economy and their hopes for it. And there's a lot of Latinos in that Southern part of the, that Sun Belt. You start looking at the North, you look at Cleveland, you look at Des Moines, you look at Lansing, you look at uh, New Hampshire. These are old economies. These are textiles, a little bit of energy, steel production. These are not these are not growing economies. They're also overwhelmingly white states. And so you start to see this shift of those states becoming a little bit more or a lot more Trumpy, a lot more Republican. And down in the southern part of the country, the Sun Belt, not the deep south, but in in some of these southern areas with with high tech economies, they're becoming much more um, much more democratic, much more culturally progressive. Well, Chuck, let's talk about one of those opportunities Mike was talking about that's, that's kind of changing. That's the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, I don't need to tell you, you know, exactly where that is. But for our listeners who might be new to the podcast or new to Texas, it's the southern tip of Texas, places like Brownsville, Harlingen, McAllen, Laredo, places like that. Historically, Chuck, it's been a blue wall down there. And we saw in 2016 and 2020 that Donald Trump did surprisingly well putting cracks in that. And it has a lot of people in Texas talking and wondering whether 
the uh, Rio Grande Valley, the RGV, is turning purple. What do you think? We did an analysis after the last elections because I don't like to talk about hypotheticals. I like to back it up with things and having conversations and real research to figure it out. I had a pretty good inkling, and my inkling was right is that it was a one-sided conversation. A, it was Texas. So let's think about that. That means Joe Biden and nobody else really spent any money in Texas. It was a foregone conclusion. So that means that nobody was really communicating. You had Donald Trump, who was this uh, mesmerizing figure that made people really gravitate towards him or gravitate to really not like him. Uh, And then, you know, you have a a, a place that on paper is 80% registered Democrat, The races are all decided in the primary down there for years. It's that blue wall you described. So if you combine a a polarizing figure with lack of investment, with with Republicans doing real organizing on the ground, uh, with a county party, with these Facebook clubs, with Democrats during COVID, I remind you, where we weren't canvassing, but I push back on Democrats who say that that was a reason, hell, we would have never been canvassing in McAllen, Texas anyway, in an off year election. So that's just a false narrative. (laughs) And then you have all these Latinos coming of age, even quicker in a place that's 80% Democrat and 80% Hispanic. So you just have the perfect storm of that spike. It's the same spike you saw in Miami Dade. And when we, uh, surveyed over 600 Latinos to Mike's point about data. It was just in three counties in the, in the Valley. I talked to over 600 people with interviews and asked them why, you know, and they were just hoping to do something that would help them. They appreciated the economy was going good before COVID. You know, they didn't know much about Joe Biden. Uh, Nobody ever talked to them about it. And I don't, I don't, uh, I don't blame the Biden campaign. They were spending money in places where they could win the presidency, and they did in Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, and other places. So, I think that it's an anomaly, but it's also a, a pattern of things that should be very worrisome for Democrats as a whole. Because if you look at downtown LA or New York, other places that didn't get a lot of presidential love, and watch how much more Trump overperformed how he should have based off of what happened there four years just prior to is very concerning to somebody like me who's looking at the data. And, and Mike, you, you've seen this too. And, and we've reported how the Republican National Committee is opening up community centers down in the Valley. I think the city of McAllen, which is technically nonpartisan uh, in their elections, they, they elected a, a Republican mayor. Um, Chuck mentioned how there, there should be concern on the Democratic side. Is there a chance for the GOP to get a foothold there? Or was was Trump just that mesmerizing figure as a once-in-a-generation once in type person? Yeah, no. I mean, look, when I was doing George, work for George W. Bush, we were making some really significant inroads. And Karl Rove, back in the late 90s, recognized that this was a big opportunity. And so they were going in and they were spending there. Now, the Republican Party of George W. Bush and even of Rick Perry, the early version of Rick Perry, is very different than the party of Donald Trump and, and, and Abbott and now Ted Cruz, right? These are two very different parties. But the fundamentals are, are, are really the same. As I mentioned, I'm a very big believer um, in, in, in what uh, demographics tells us. And the longer that, that voters um, are here and assimilate and acculturate, the more open they are to start reflecting the overall electorate. So, um, but what is important to understand is, is ultimately that th- th- as, the, as the Republican Party starts to focus more on becoming a working class party, they are doing things tactically that are correct. They are showing up now. Republicans are starting to show up. 
Um, but those are really uh, they're important. They are marginal and, and campaigns do matter. And everything that you throw at a campaign matters. But I'm also a big believer that if you don't have an underlying message, I don't care how good your tactics are. If you can't, you can't sell a bad product to people that don't want it, there is an opening there that Republicans are beginning to take advantage of. But I do want to put this in perspective. The Democrats are still winning a, a commanding share of the Latino vote here. There's still a 60-40 you know, worst case. Usually it's better than that. The, the dynamics of the party still do lean, or the Democratic Party still do lord benefiting Democrats because of a point that Chuck Buck, which is important for people to understand, this is a decidedly younger demographic. And young people of every persuasion tend to be more liberal progressive. So every 30 seconds, an eight, a Latino turns 18 and is eligible to, to vote in this country. Every 30 seconds, we're adding you know, uh, another voter. Those voters are an 85% likely Democratic voter, at least for the first six years of their life. So Republicans are going to be having a different message, which will be much more focused on populist economics to people 35 and over. Democrats will be focusing on more culturally progressive issues. Both will be building infrastructure. It's going to be a fight. I'm excited about it because I've been watching this very closely every day for the past 30 years, and it's reached this new point where it's really going to determine what the history of this country is going to look like. So, it, it, yeah, it, it's fascinating. And, and this next question, you know, it, journalists like myself like to be able to, to make things black and white and, and, and put people in their compartments and, and uh, close the door. Uh, but Latinos cannot be boxed in as easily as, as other ethnic, ethnic groups uh, might be able to when it comes to, to how they vote. Um, going back to the November 2020 election, uh, Trump got two thirds of the white vote. Uh, Biden got 90% of the black vote and the Latino vote was a, a lot more evenly split, as you mentioned, Mike, between both candidates. Trump got 41% of it. Biden got 58%, roughly what you said, 60 to 40. I, I'm curious, Chuck, why do you think that is? Why are Latinos, uh, why are whites and blacks and Latinos values so vastly different? I know it's such a, a broad question for you there, but the, the whites seem to vote one way, blacks vote another way, and Latinos are voting both ways. It's because you have a, because the Latinos are just so different. So A, they all come from different places of origin, their families, right? They're all immigrated here from somewhere. A handful of us were here and the border crossed us, right? So first you talk about that from all Cuba, Puerto Rico, Venezuela, 68% are Mexican from Mexico and family from Mexico. You should always root the Latino vote in that, that almost 70% of Latinos in America are Mexican. <coughs> Then you, you, you loop in what I said about being so young and mm. we're just young. Then you loop in that we speak two different languages, not like black people or white people. There's a Spanish language that's in our households. It may not be the dominant thing, but it's there. Then you have multi-generational households because we have been so newly immigrated here. So we are quote unquote up for grabs. So then you have Mexicans like me who are third generation, who if you, if you're listening to this podcast right now, I sound like an old white man from East Texas because that's the granddaddy that raised me, my mother's father, you know, on a working farm, you know, in Tyler, Texas, which was still 14 miles from where I was actually going to sleep every night. So to Mike's point, I grew up like every other white redneck where I grew up, right? There were two Mexican families in Tyler's in the 60s and 70s, right? Us and the, the folks who ran the Mexican restaurant, El Charro's. And so 
the way I consume information and think about things were rooted in how I was, but that's just in the black community. Think about this for a moment. These people were enslaved working for folks in the cotton fields. They were property. And so when they finally got the right to vote, there's this historic fight where people died and bled. And this is passed down from generations to generations. And that's just not in the Latino community yet. Right. We haven't been here long enough to have that. Right. So that's why you see us as a pure, quote unquote, uh, persuadable, you know, marginal audience more and more as these Latinos get older. It's just a mathematical game at that point. Right. Democrats have had a advantage connecting two questions ago about how did when did Democrats stop being the party of workers? I wrote an op-ed just to not let my fancy California brother talk about his op-eds. I wrote one <laughs> that said that uh, I joined the Democratic Party because the union president at the rubber workers local in Tyler, Texas, said, son, we're all Democrats here because the Democrats are with the workers and the Republicans are with the supervisors and we are with the workers. And that stuck with me. But over time, we've lost that. And that's a big, big reason. And I give Mike credit. You should read his op-ed about why we're losing more and more of the Latino vote, because my party, the Democrats, have forgotten that message of 1989 when I joined the union. And I was standing up and protesting against NAFTA and Dick Gephardt, me and him were walking the halls of Congress, figuring out like how we could give voices to factory workers and started being this party of 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 college educated elite folks. But when you pull back that cover of the Democratic operatives and you pull back that cover of who's running lots of stuff, it is folks who are highly educated, who in their mind are trying to do the exact right thing for America. And they want the same things I want, but they just socially can't connect to my community because they're just not from it. Hmm. Let me, can, I, can I jump in there a little bit? Yeah, Jason? please, Mike, go ahead. You're asking a really important question. and It's really about America's inability to discuss race in any terms other than black and white for very good reason, as Chuck just pointed out. That slavery is the original sin of America. And that is not something that you just get over uh, in, in one decade or in one century. Owning other people had a foundational imprint on both white and, of course, black America. And when I, I did not realize how important this was until as a, as a young man, I went to school back on the East Coast. Right, I'm from Southern California, where everybody was either Mexican, Mexican-American, or you know had friends and family that were Mexican-American. And going to the East Coast, where I was the first Mexican guy that a lot of people had first you know, known or met, I started to realize how different this country was. And and I wanted to go there to understand. I knew even then as a young man that America was going to be changing, that we would be in my lifetime, a non-white majority country. And that's going to have dramatic impacts on our democracy. It's going to have dramatic impacts on our society. It's going to have dramatic impacts on every part of our life. And I knew that that was going to be happening over my lifetime. And I wanted to be part of that. I, I learned very early on that America does not have the tools. This country does not have the tools because of our origin story to understand the nuance of race. And that's where the promise of this Latino vote is coming into play is between these two extremes, this, this intractable um, black and white extreme. The promise of Latinos is to be able to bridge that divide. And, and I may sound Pollyannish, but I genuinely believe that a growing Latino population could actually be one of the things that helps save democracy because it's going to moderate both parties. 
the Democrats are going to have to get back to their working class roots if they're going to get more of the Latino vote. They just have to. And the Republican Party is going to have to get back to its original foundation as the party of anti-slavery and Lincolnism, which is being a multiracial, multi-ethnic, pluralistic democracy. And if both parties get back to that foundation stone, Latinos could actually center the country and hopefully bring about something much more positive than the extreme vitriolic, you know, angry society that we've been for the past 10 dozen years or so. Yeah, the, yeah absolutely. Where we are now. Uh, a couple last questions for you guys. I, I was going through preparing for this podcast. and I found something from Pew Research that was pretty interesting. And I'm curious if you guys have seen this or have heard this or might have insight on it. Uh, you, you know, you're talking about the, the vitriol, all the pessimism that's out there. There's headlines every so often. You know, is the United States headed for another civil war because things seem so uh, black and white? But it says that uh, Pew Research said after the 2020 election, fewer Latino and black adults feel angry and they are more hopeful about the state of the United States. And Chuck, my, I guess the question is for you, and I might already know the answer. And is it because so many are, are, are just younger and have that idealism? I think that's part of it. And Mike will tell you that Pew is a good pollster that does good polling. He loves to talk about numbers. I am not the numbers part of this podcast. When you listen to the Latino vote, I am the charm and charisma part. So <laughs> as we think about that, uh, what you're saying is right, is that a lot of us grew up really, really poor, right? All we've ever had is hope. You combine that with us being younger. And then you combine that with the Chuck Roach's story of a lot of people now are multiracial. Right. Me and my fiance is multiracial. My kids are multiracial. My grandkids that right. When you go to my Twitter at Chuck Roach and look at my face after I've talked about how pretty I am, I have grandchildren that are multiracial. So a country is just not black and white anymore. And there's so many more multiracial people that that live on the hope of the American dream. Like that's what keeps everybody going. And that's why you see a lot of Latinos going to the Republican Party because they think that they see that success. Democrats would clutch our pearls and go, no, we need to all be this way. No, no, no. We want to be rich. I ran a presidential campaign for Democratic Socialists. I will admit I want to be rich. Guess what? Because I'm taking care of my mama. I'm taking care of those grand boys. If I go down, there's a whole big part of my family to go down with me. So what I'm describing is demanding hope, demanding that we can be a better place, demanding that we deserve better as a people. And that being not a black people or a brown people, but all people. Right. So I think that that's what you're seeing. Hmm. And, and Mike, one of the last questions here, too. I've done a lot of research. I've listened to all the podcasts you guys have done. I've been reporting politics and in, in a couple of different states for the past 20 something years, 25 years or so. What am I not asking about the Latino vote that you guys are physically seeing on the ground? What a great question. Uh, you've obviously been doing this for a little while. Um, I, I think look, I, I'm going to answer the question, but I'm, I'm going to riff off a little bit of what Chuck just said, because that that hopefulness is a particularly beautiful thing when it comes from black and brown people who are the two main constituencies that have not realized the full promise of what this country is. And the fact that we are so much younger gives me hope for where we are going as a country and as a multiracial pluralistic democracy. So the question I think that you might want to ask is how are Latinos different or are they different? And what does that mean? And a lot of what I think we've as practitioners have come to recognize is there may not necessarily be a monolithic Latino vote 
right? There's not a Latino vote per se. That's the uh, uh, name of our podcast. Um, pick us up on Spotify and Google and wherever else you get your podcasts. <laughs> but um, there are Latino voters and understanding the nuance of that um, it really helps us understand, I think, what could be a healing element for our democracy and for our society and for this country. As, as stark as a lot of the dynamics are in this country at this time, as divisive and corrosive as things have been, I'm actually very optimistic myself because a new America is emerging and this culture that comes from a non-white European background is actually going to, I think, make us a better, stronger people and continue, help us continue the American experiment. And so that's, that nuances, those differences is how Latinos can help us recommit to those principles, to those ideals of the founding fathers who looked nothing like us, who had an experience, nothing like us as a people, but can build that bridge between this, these two stark experiences that are part of the American origin story. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's something, it's something um, that I think we should all be excited to be witnessing um, in our lifetimes, because by the time we all pass into, you know, the next place, America for the first time in our history will be a non-white majority country. And we're going to know whether or not America can be America if it's not. And I'm confident that we can. Good thesis there too. Hey, Chuck, before we let you go, uh, zoom out for me. Do Democrats lose the House and Senate in November? Look, we are fighting an uphill battle. <clears throat> and I'm going to tell you, you ask a question while I go, who's doing good and who's not. The Senate campaign committee, the Senate super PACs got a wake up call after the last elections and they have literally did a 360 and they're doing amazing work reaching out to Latinos early and often on the Senate side. So I'm feeling more bullish about a chamber that's literally tied. We're over in the house. They're doing the same thing that they've always done, hiring the same consultants and hoping for different results. In the top 50, 50, the top 50 races in 2020, there was only one Latino campaign manager of the top 50 races. I don't see much changing now. There's not one single Latino media firm that's been hired in a top 25 congressional race this year, where six of them have over 35% Latino population. So I feel great about what I'm seeing in the Senate, and I feel like we'll keep the Senate. And if the House continues to keep, keep if the House continues to keep hiring woke white consultants to save the Latino community, we're going to lose the majority in the House. That's unbelievable stats there too. Mike, before we let you go, what's next for the Lincoln Project? Uh, if Trump doesn't run, are you guys still around in 2024 and beyond? Well, I, I'm actually no longer with the Lincoln Project, but we, all of us, each of the eight co-founders are involved uh, in, in different, you know, essentially protecting democracy and freedom in our own way. So um, I'm starting to do a little bit more international work, but my focus really is going to be on the Latino vote. It's been my passion for years. It's part of why I was involved with the Lincoln Project in the first place. Um, but we're just gonna have to wait and see. I mean, Trumpism is not dead. It's very much alive and well. And that's what we have been trying to root out. And I think we've just gone on different paths to make sure that that's going to be possible. Good deal. Mike Madrid, Chuck Rocha, their podcast is called The Latino Vote. Brand new podcast. Really gets in the weeds like you could tell from our conversation here as well, too. You can find it, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcast. It's a cool little yellow tile uh, I think what yellow, blue, red, something like that. I believe, guys. All in uh, Mexican colors. We put very them all Mexican. on there. Yeah, <laughs> can't miss it. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks so much. We'll uh, see you again next week to talk Texas politics here on Yellow Ticks as well. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>